Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another fascinating episode of Health Unchained. I've been rather busy in recent weeks, so I haven't been publishing episodes as often as I'd like to, so I apologize for that. I appreciate all your support and will continue to create high-quality content for the community. Healthcare is a complicated topic, and adding blockchain to the mix makes things even more perplexing. I hope these conversations help you navigate this new paradigm of distributed trust models in the health sector. In August 2021, as a member of the Consensus Health team, I attended the HIMSS, or the Healthcare Information and Management System Society, conference, where I had the opportunity to speak with attendees about the use of blockchain in healthcare. This is one of the biggest annual healthcare conferences in the world, and I was somewhat surprised to see the limited number of companies working on blockchain initiatives. It was clear that people had an interest in blockchain as evidenced by the crowds gathered at the Consensus Health booth, but it seemed like much of the program's focus was on AI and care delivery. The best part of the event was actually meeting my new coworkers in person for the first time. There's just some things virtual cannot replace. I'm so grateful to be part of the Consensus Health team. Okay, thanks for listening to my personal updates there. Now, time to get into the episode. This episode features Dr. Jonathan Bringas Demetriades, who is co-founder and CEO of Lapsi Health, based in the Netherlands. Lapsi Health is an early-stage startup developing digital therapeutics, starting with solutions for chronic asthma pediatric patients. We talked about the evolution of digital therapeutics and wearables from a medical doctor's perspective. Although this episode is light on blockchain talk, it was still a great conversation about the future of digital health and how we can get there. I hope you all enjoy it. Thanks again for listening. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. Now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's special guest is Jonathan Dimitriades. He's a medical doctor and he's had a lot of experience in the digital therapeutic space as well as the wearables space. And he's currently the CEO of Lapsi Health and he's also uh, the chief medical officer at Diam Life as well as Nukuti Nukete. Jonathan, I'll let you introduce yourself a little bit and if you don't mind, so you can have. Um, so a few minutes just to explain who you are to the audience, to give them a, like a reference. Thank you very much, uh, Ray. So my name is Jonathan. I am a medical doctor from Peru, um, now living in the Netherlands already for some years now. And uh, yes, indeed, I'm the chief medical communications officer of Nukute. Nukute is a medical technology company in Finland that creates wearables for the continuous, let's call it respiratory sound monitoring and uh, sleep apnea diagnostics. And I'm also chief executive officer and co-founder of Lapsi Health, which is a digital therapeutic in pediatric pulmonology, among other things, leveraging education with Medscape and helping companies like DM Life to create their DTX methods. And that's pretty much me. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for that. So maybe we can get started about your current role as CEO of Lapsi Health. So first of all, what is Lapsi Health? And what is the vision and mission of the company? Yes. So Lapsi Health is the company that has been established uh, not so long ago in the Netherlands. We are a group of doctors and technologists that have been identifying different, let's call it um, different gaps in the monitoring and treat, treating of chronic disease in pediatric populations, most specifically in asthma. And we have been studying the disease uh, very eagerly trying to find out a way that we could actually enhance the outcomes of the patients and how we can also sort out the biggest problems that this disease has, which are which is adherence and using the right technique to use medication uh, during crisis. 
And um, uh, so as a team, we developed this uh, methodology that basically we identified, first of all, during the disease, where are the moments where we actually need to create interventions. And then with technology, and we're talking about AI, um, hardware technology, of course, to acquire data and, um, and app applications, we have been able to deliver the uh, interventions in the population at the right moments so that we can create a behavioral change and help them then maintain the disease without having to go all the time to GP consults or getting hospitalized or having to increase the medication because of a bad adherence to the medication regime. And that's what we do in LabC. We just started, um, we are preclinical, but um, our methodology is very, um, it, it has been very researched and our prototyping in, in the hardware side, it, uh, it looks really robust. Interesting. When, when you say like hardware side, uh, what kind of devices or tools are you, are you building? We're building wearables. We're building wearables that, that uh, allow us to do continuous monitoring of a specific biomarker. And with that biomarker, we can create um, algorithms. And with these algorithms help us to navigate the physiopathology of the disease and understand where we need to, uh, to set up an intervention. And by uh, doing that, and by, by then helping ourselves with these algorithms to actually uh, assess the moment of intervention, we are able to then decrease dramatically the hospitalizations and uh, GP consults and what I just told you before. Very interesting. So most of the audience here knows that the show, we like to focus on how blockchain technology and healthcare kind of intersect. But you know, one thing I want the audience to know is blockchain by itself is useless unless you have like good data, reliable data, and knowing how to use that data to actually help the patient and individual is super important. So the clinical aspect of this is incredibly uh, valuable. So your experience is, is there. And I think you know, I want to learn a little bit more about the wearable devices and which biomarkers are you specifically targeting or tracking? Yeah, so um, what we have done and what we have been doing uh, until now is developing the hardware um, that, uh, and we're using acoustics. That means we are actually using audio uh, signals and uh, these audio signals can be analyzed and we can understand in a continuous way when the patient has um, a uh, asthma crisis or um, when the patient is actually need, in need of an intervention. This is basically the biggest, uh, let's say, functionality of our wearables. And then, of course, we have been adding other ways of monitoring, whether it is positioning, we have some motion sensing also included in the package. I can't really talk a lot about it uh, in terms okay. of, uh, of what exactly we're doing, just because we are um, finalizing some patent parts uh, of our solution. But the moment that we will do that, I would love to just, you know, give you an update on that. Um, sure. Yes. Not a problem. So just a, one last question, just to clarify. And if you can't answer, that's okay. But when you say wearables, is it like a, a wrist wearable or is this like a shirt or some sort of like a suit or skin or something? It's is definitely that... not a wrist wearable. It's definitely okay. not a wrist wearable. And the thing is that, you know, uh, in, in the wearable technology side, of course, the wrist wearable is the lowest hanging fruit. You know, every... Mm -hmm. Every company that does wearables are using whether it's PPG or um, you what know PPG? motion the, sensing. The audience, it's a photo photoplethysmography. It's um, it's a technique to, uh, that uh, allows you to uh, throw light. Let's say let's say let light through the skin, and then with a with a special camera, you can actually analyze the way ma micro vessels get um, flow. Let's say that they get full of blood and then pump the blood out. And when you do that, when you when you can actually see that irrigation of microvessels, you can de uh, deduce through algorithms, a heart rate, respiratory rate, or a heart rate variability, um, SpO2. So that's what the Fitbit watch has, what the Apple watch have, or the or the uh, the one that you're using, which is the Garmin, I think. Yeah, that's right. I'm showing you on uh, the video right now the Garmin. It's really useful because the battery <laughs> lasts uh, longer than the iWatch. Um, I'm not sponsoring any company now, but I'm just, just mentioning my experience. <laughs> well, that's pretty interesting. Um, so one thing that we talked about before this podcast was how important it is for, you know, physicians to be able to influence or try to, you know, help the patient make better decisions about their health, depending on their different 
condition state or illness that they might have. So do you want to talk a little bit about, about that? Definitely. So, you know, physicians, we at the moment are, when we talk, when we work in practice, just in, in the clinical practice, we, we see patients, we diagnose patients, we treat patients, we send them home. Um, and uh, we are very much involved in the entire patient journey, but we don't go around it. Um, we don't build tools uh, that are maybe not seen by the patient or seen by the doctor in, in the moment, but actually can help the patient. And we are not part of the developing groups, you know? So as doctors, we just receive the technology and then we implement it, we apply it to the patient, but we are not in the process of decision-making of that technology until now. So now the doctors are actually going one step before and we are deciding, hey, you know, we also wanna be part of this development part and understand you know, so we can help you understand where you can implement your technology make it more efficient maybe help you with uh, for instance in the visual therapeutic side maybe help you with the intervention you know i can help you analyze the physiopathology of a disease which is uh, the way it behaves a disease behaves from origin to end um, so that you know where are the moments where, where by doing behavioral change or by doing a little bit of remote monitoring by having a couple of alarms, you can actually really have a very deep impact in the patient journey during this disease. So this is the importance of a doctor. You know, of course, we also help you help technologists to really implement it in the field, uh, run clinical trials, design those clinical trials. Um, you know, compared with the standard of care and do everything else. But in the part of the, the innovation side, I think that. As, as people that are really knowledgeable of disease itself, we can definitely be very impactful in the moment of deciding how to create or to develop technologies. That's true. I think that's, um, that's a trend that we're seeing in a lot of different startups. The doctors are getting more involved in the initial phases of you know market development, just understanding what's needed and then product development. So that's really important. I'm glad that it's happening. I wish we did that when we were developing electronic health record systems, uh, but you know, <laughs> that's how that goes. Um, so what do you think about your specific experience in medicine that is special or how, how do you think that has really changed the way that you've worked with these companies? So, you know, when I, when I started to work in, um, just in the clinical practice, uh, as just as a normal general physician, I've seen many patients. I worked at an emergency room in Peru. I worked as an occupational doctor afterwards in Peru. I've seen many accidents happen, many diseases being treated. And what I kept telling myself is, especially when I came to the Netherlands, um, I wanted to have a role that impacts more lives. Um, I'm not saying that doctors that work in a clinic don't impact lives, they, they impact lives tremendously. Um, but I was just, for me, uh, the, the moment of innovation and the moment of deciding for digital technologies or just any type of technologies um, also impacts a lot of lives and we can actually be part of it. So when I started, I started from the bottom. I started in the, in the sales uh, groups at, the, at some medtech companies and I've been building up in my career, um, learning a little bit more about innovation and um, starting to learn more about the technology itself. And at some point in my journey, I realized, well, I'm actually really, really enjoying this, but I'm also actually starting to become more creative, um, understanding not only the technology, but also being able to think, well, actually we should implement it in this, we should implement it in that. Um, why don't we just, you know, um, use, for instance, you know, PPG and blood pressure. It has been told uh, and talked a lot about it, you know, um, there are a couple of, uh, of clinical trials going on right now in, in the USA um, on you know, wristband uh, wearables that can actually measure blood pressure in a continuous way. Now, the implementation of these uh, technologies would benefit so many people. Think about pregnant women during preeclampsia that they have their blood pressure that goes up you know, during pregnancy and they need to be constantly going to the doctor and checking their blood pressure every day um, that they could actually have something that tells them, hey, you know, your trend of your blood pressure, not even if you have a hypertension or not, but actually how it behaves in a continuous trend, you know? So even if you don't have a high blood pressure at that moment, that actually the, the trending part of the application can tell you it's going up. So 
you better start uh, resting more. You better, oh, you better call your doctor, you know, go there before you actually have to get into an emergency situation. There's a lot of ways to, to prevent so many things with technology. And as doctors, we continuously see the potential working on risk uh, scores with wearable technology, using AI algorithms to detect or to analyze data um, and, and help us uh, actually diagnose better, you know, screen better or even treat better. So I think as a doctor in the technology, we, I, I personally really enjoy it. I think that this is going to be a specialty in the future, maybe. Um, and, um, and I think that if, the, so there's a lot of people saying that technology will replace medical doctors. I don't know if that is completely true. I think there are a lot of different uh, things that uh, involve the medical practice that are very subjective. But uh, what I do think is that the doctors that know technology will take a more prioritized place in, in the future practical medicine than the doctors that don't speak technology language. So we might as well just want to learn that a little bit. I think you're right. And, you know, I have heard some people say like, will artificial intelligence replace the doctors like kind of how you mentioned. Uh, but I also don't think that'll happen because like you said, medicine, it's not like we understand everything about biology yet. There's a lot more to learn. Of course, in the last few hundred years, we've accomplished a lot. Um, we've learned a lot more about the body and the brain, all the different organs in our system and how they all function together. But there's still so much more to understand. Uh, and then you have some companies and startups and thought leaders that think that will even eventually learn to stop aging or even reverse aging and that's like a, a completely um, even more futuristic topic but we won't ever get there until we're able to collect enough data to understand ourselves better so right now we're at this phase where we're building the technologies to help us understand ourselves a little bit better um, and hopefully with the use of ai we can start to you know make better decisions even predict how we'll do based on our genetics and our environment and things like that so that's a really interesting area to work in, especially for a doctor, because there's so much opportunity. When people say that AI might replace doctors, are you afraid at any point that um, regulation might might influence that decision, like because of that reason, or do you feel like the regulators? And I know this is different in every country. I don't I don't know how it is in Peru or the Netherlands, but I feel like in the U.S. we we sort of are in the innovative space we are innovating and there are companies um, but there also is like a hesitation towards some new things for good reason in most cases how are they doing in other countries i think the hesitation is um is a general feeling um i see it in Peru, i see it in the netherlands uh, just across europe um what you when, when you say that ai will replace doctors i think that, that there's a huge connotation into that phrase you know we're talking about the way we can quantify and analyze big masses of data to actually be more accurate. And as a human being, our brains cannot really process as much data as a machine can at some point. So this, if, if we think about um, doing statistical analysis in, in a bit of a second uh, with such a power, we can't do it as doctors. But if you think about other uh, ways of, of creativity or understanding of disease, for instance, what happens when a new coronavirus or a new epidemic just comes uh, into the world and something that we don't know, you know? So as, as human beings, what we can do is we can actually create knowledge in, in a very creative way. And, and those things are very difficult to replicate because they, they happen uh, to be originated from moments that we have experienced in life in the past, um, sensations, things we heard, uh, things we read in a book, and all those things they they collude inside of your of your brain and they give you an idea that eventually becomes innovative. You know, so I do believe that doctors have that role and they will continue to have the role um, for a long time. I also think that technology still has a very big leap to um, to fulfill before we can say that technology will really replace doctors. There are a lot of places in healthcare where technology hasn't advanced in centuries. For instance, gynecology, you know? We are using the speculum in women since the 1860s. It has never been updated. And it's just, it's just such a shame. 
I think it's because I think there are many reasons why. Um, I, I think there are a lot of different groups of patients that are underserved in, in medicine, maybe because the development comes from, um, from one type of, of, of group more than from the other. Um, but the thing is that there are places in, in, in the medical practice where we really don't have that level of development as much as we have it in others. So I think uh, for technology to really, really replace doctors, there will have to be a standardization and a homo homogeneous um, development in every single sector, whether it's pediatrics, neonatology, gynecology, you know, um, geriatrics, as much as they want to do it, for instance, in cardiology, radiology, and metabolic. You know, it, it has to be a, a very standardized um, development. What I do think that is might sound really bad for the radiologists is that some parts of the radiologists' um, jobs might be threatened at this point, same as probably from the pathologists, just because that's really quantifiable. Yeah, that's true. Being able to collect all the images and sort of use AI to analyze them. You know, another technology that I find pretty interesting and that has started to really get into the healthcare world in the last few years is around virtual reality and how virtual reality is impacting even the way that some patients are receive therapy uh, without pharmaceuticals, for instance, or, you know, with as a supplement. You want to talk a little bit about what you know there and what you can see happening in the future with VR? Definitely. So um, first of all, I have to say, I'm, I'm really lucky to know um, amazing doctors that use virtual reality in their daily, in the daily life, um, like Raphael Crossman in the US or uh, Shafi Ahmed in the UK. Um, really great surgeons using VR almost every day. Um, I think that VR has tremendous potential. Uh, the fact that you can get transported outside of your reality to a different reality um, where, for instance, the hospital is no longer a threatening place um, where um, you're not going through an MRI. Um, those things really help. They, they, uh, they really help you, help you for your mental health. They help you to increase your outcomes. Um, they can even help you to stop doing things in, um, in, in your daily life as, as a habit or, or create a real deep behavioral change that would allow you to treat your disease probably without medication. Also, virtual reality is right now being used a lot on education. And medical education is also very important. And if we think about medical outcomes, you know, um, medical education and giving the right one to people, not only in centralized places like US, Europe, or, uh, you know, uh, East, uh, East Asia, but actually giving it worldwide. I've seen master classes happening in Peru where the surgeons are actually in the United States and everything is being given with virtual reality. They also, of course, help to higher up the uh, patient outcomes of the patients of these doctors that will be attended by these physicians in Peru. So that being said, I think it's um, virtual reality and augmented reality has have all just tremendous potential, whether it's in the formation or, or future generation of doctors, as much as it is in treating patients allowing patients to get better rehabilitation, better treatment, better, uh, and of course, increase their outcomes. Incredible. And similar to VR, we have augmented reality too. I just think it's so cool that in the future, you know, someone can put on augmented reality glasses, look at a, a person's body, and then, you know, you'll have a digital representation of what's going on on the inside. Um, I don't know how far in the future that is, but I think if we can get to a state where I can, you know, watch my heart beating uh in the mirror <laughs> i think that would be a very interesting um i don't know how useful it is right now and now that i'm thinking about it but what kind of medical uses do you see with augmented reality Oof, so many i mean let's think about invasive techniques right like for instance a, a venous puncture or even a, a worse one, a spinal puncture, you know, where, where you really don't know if you're really at the canal. You, you see them happen constantly and that they, they keep missing in patients. And these could really enhance the way we do these things, uh, that the techniques don't have to be continuously repeated in order to achieve success, but that they can actually be done only once with, with a very high accuracy. Um, and the same would go for um, repairs, you know, skin repairs, um, for, for 
even deeper operations, um, placing pacemakers in the heart. There's so many ways in, in terms of invasive um, uh, procedures that where augmented reality could definitely help us a lot. Of course, it has to be very accurate, you know, so it has to be probably uh, led by a type of scan, a pre-made scan, so that it would be actually very, very accurate. Um, but I'm, I've seen already some uh, devices, for instance, uh, IV placements uh, that are already using some sorts of augmented reality techniques um, and they are pretty accurate. And, and that also helps the patients to understand a little bit their bodies and, um, and to understand how it works and they, it really decreases anxiety in patients. So I think it has two purposes. Yeah, you make a good point because I think if the patient is able to understand their own body a little bit more, I think they might even care about their bodies a little bit more. There's a lot of people who might not um, be willing to, you know, do the right things, meaning like eat well or exercise or at least stay active, social, um, or even like maybe, you know, reduce the amount that they drink or smoke or things like that. So, um, but if they can see like how their lungs look like while they're alive, maybe that might influence uh, their decisions. Just as an example. Hmm. So we talked about a few different wearables, but are there some devices that maybe are not in the mainstream yet? I know there are wristbands. We talked about them. There are probably some like hats. There's rings. There's like leg bracelets there's probably you know things you wear um maybe as briefs or something is there anything that's like unique that you've seen that, that we should know about yes so I, I just to give you a really great example um so i worked for nukuta nukuta is a company in finland and um what we're doing is we're creating wearables that do uh tracking uh, breathing sounds analysis and what it does is it has really great, powerful microphones. It goes on your neck. It's a very small uh, collar. It goes around your neck and um, it can actually um, collect data, which is your breathing sounds, your tracheal breathing sounds, and then analyze it in the cloud. And through that technique, you don't need to put on a, can a nasal cannula anymore uh, when you're gonna get a, a sleep apnea assessment and you can still get the same or even more accurate values of, of breathing flow. Um, and, and it's just one of all the possibilities that you can um, acquire with tracheal breathing sound um, monitoring. It's a wearable device, you know, completely non-invasive. I think at this point, we're still not really using it as much uh, and with the, um, the potential that it has because it's just a very new uh, technology. Another thing that I'm seeing that is really interesting for wearable technologies is the functional electrical stimulation that is portable and, and wearable. You have a couple of companies that are doing that. You know, um, I don't know if you know about FEST uh, technology, but it's basically uh, applying uh, electrical stimulation to the muscles uh, when in patients that have had um, severe uh, diseases of muscular, muscular neural diseases or neuromuscular diseases are neurodegenerative diseases or some partial sections of in, in terms of spine sections. And um, these patients can still recover and they can still get rehabilitation and recover from these diseases, for instance, drop foot. And, um, and there's a technique called FES for the rehabilitation of these, uh, of these diseases. Um, but at the moment, uh, FES was always done at, at a practice, you know, at a rehabilitation practice or a physiotherapy practice uh, because it involves very big um, equipment. And now there are some companies that are creating these equipments in a wearable way. So you have like a little glove for your leg and then you have an app on your phone and you can actually receive your therapy directly to your phone from your physiotherapist. You don't have to go to the consult. You can do all your exercises at home um, it helps you. It's like a walking aid. It helps you to continue to walk um, and you can com completely monitor it from your phone. So you have companies like Festia in Spain and TrainFest in Chile. And there are other ones in the US that are doing this um, in, in a very interesting way. It's a very interesting market as well um, that will continue to grow uh, in the future as rehabilitation and physiotherapy get broader and broader in the populations. And also, of course, in, in countries that are in, in the developing world will also grow 
um, as, as let's, go, let's say the economic situation of these countries get or start to grow, then there's more attention to rehabilitation. Um, so these are, these are some examples of other technologies that don't necessarily mean PPG or continuous glucose monitoring, but at the same time that really deliver some high quality data. And in the terms of the FEST technology, actually high quality therapeutics. That's interesting. A lot of these technologies require like a period of cultural adoption almost, because I think there's uh, some stigmas, at least there used to be around like wearing body. Wearing, wearing computers on your body was not a normal thing, but it's starting to become more normal um, over time. So I'm wondering, like, what's the cultural awareness of, of people, for example, in Latin America, because you have experience there about wearables or devices? Is it is it more accepting or less accepting? What would you say? I think it's starting right now with uh, with the consumer market as everything else. Uh, so, you know, people are using the Fitbits, the, the Apple watches, the, the Garmin watches, you know, those things. Uh, at this point, I don't see uh, the population getting into the deep medical wearable technology yet. Um, also, the doctors are not really into that space yet. But I think that uh, because the consumer market has been impacted by wearables so much, the medical community is starting to open their eyes to see what else is there. And, um, you know, for instance, the, the continuous glucose monitoring is one of those things that um, until now, you know, patients were having to always like uh, get up, get a little, they call it in Dutch prick on their on their finger constantly. And then testing with a little device. And now you have these uh, continuous uh, glucose um, monitoring devices with micro needles that are just monitoring your glucose levels continuously. Um, in, in Latin America, you can see people starting to use them. Um, I think that it, it will, it, it's just a matter of time. In some specialties, it might take longer than in other ones. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. On August 10th, 2021, Consensus Health agreed to acquire Fireblocks, an innovative developer of solutions to support self-sovereign patient-directed fine-grained sharing of protected personal health information. The acquisition includes the transfer of Fireblocks' intellectual property, as well as key executives, business activities, and relationships to Consensus Health. Currently, slow and error-prone manual processes have largely been used to administer patient data consents. But the introduction of digital communications using fast healthcare interoperability resources, or FHIR, for data interoperability has shown clear benefits and is now mandated by regulations, such as the United States 21st Century Cures Act. In addition, patients and consumer privacy regulations, such as HIPAA, GDPR, and CCPA, are also mandating new processes. The integration of Consensus's elevated compute with technology components that underpin the Fireblocks Consent for Health application will bolster the platform's patient-centric privacy capabilities, allowing frictionless sharing of confidential healthcare data, empowering liquid data between healthcare market participants. Consent for Health allows patients to control the sharing of their personal health information, which is typically spread across several healthcare providers managed by different EHR systems. The acquisition deal is expected to close in Q4 of 2021. The link to the full press release is in the show notes. Full disclosure, I am an employee at Consensus Health, and I'd be happy to route any questions or inquiries about the acquisition. All right, now let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Jonathan Dimitriades, CEO of Lapsi Health. You know, you've been a sort of a medical doctor, scientist, you're in the medical field. Um, do you have any maybe scientists in, throughout history that you feel are incredibly important to you that you have aspired to? Oh, definitely. So um, first of all, my mentor through medical, uh, medical school um, is a Nobel Prize laureate from medicine of 1993, uh, Sir Richard Roberts. I met him when I was 14 years old. I, I participated with a group of other Peruvian uh, high school kids in a, in a fair organized by Intel called Intel ISEF. 
So ISOF means um, International Science and Engineering Fair. There's even a documentary on, the, on uh, National Geographic about it. Uh, it's like one of the biggest competitions in, in uh, children that are scientists. So basically little nerds. And, um, <laughs> and, and uh, they have, so all these contestants, they have these big judges, right? Um, and um, they really do their biggest effort, the people in Intel to actually like really find the greatest minds to judge these kids also to inspire them a lot. So um, in, in the time when I was there, um, the judges were Catherine Bell Burnett, which was the first woman astronaut. Um, there was also, if I'm, if I'm wrong, I think I'm right. I think it was Neil Armstrong that was also there. And then of course, Richard Roberts. And um, I, was, I was flabbergasted by him because he gave an amazing speech about when he was a kid and um, he didn't go to the fanciest college. He was a little kid in the countryside in the UK. And, um, and you know, it was something that you, you get inspired as a, as a kid from a Latin American country, you know, in a developing world to actually hear someone that says, hey, I didn't go to the fanciest college. I didn't uh, really, you know, I was a kid in the countryside and I still made it. And I still uh, created a huge impact uh, in the lives of so many people. So I asked him if, if I might just, you know, get his email address and he gave it to me and I wrote him an email thinking I was never gonna answer my email. But eventually he's the one, he answered my email, he, he decided to coach me and give me mentorship. And I think from that moment until now, we stay in touch fairly frequently. And, um, and I think it's one of those people that have really have made a huge impact in my life from that moment. And I have, of course, other ones that have done it in the subsequent moments of my life as a medical doctor, you know, influencing my career. Um, and and as, as a doctor in technology, I went immediately to the cardiology side because of great cardiologists that I had a great uh, esteem and relationship with. Um, and right now in the pulmonology side and in the respiratory side as well, being influenced by great pulmonologists as well. You know, that's really uh, pretty inspiring because, you know, a lot of people might be listening out there, like not thinking that they have enough experience to do something or whatever. But I think as long as you have that drive and you, you push for what you believe in and you take those chances, uh, it really pays off. So that's awesome. That's a really cool story. I love that. Um, I also realized Recently, you were in a panel with a few people, including John Nosta, who's you know at Google. He's really into future tech, future health tech. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that conversation and like what were some important things that came out of it? Yeah, so we were in a panel with him, uh, with Denise Hilbert, uh, which is she's also in the in the virtual reality world. Um, uh, Diana von Stein. Uh, so yes so john nasta he uh, we were talking about a little bit about the future of medicine and um, how we see technology influencing medical decisions um and, and if, if there are some things that he really said is that uh, we are underestimating technology at the moment uh, doctors and i think he's right in that um the the, the leverage uh, of adoption is uh, even though we're trying to leverage adoption worldwide i think the medical community is still being very resistant to change they are also being very resistant to what technology can do for them in terms of the clinical practice. And so we discussed this. I think that one of the biggest challenges for us right now um, as, as doctors in technology is to, you know, go to our, um, our colleagues in, in the medical field and tell them, hey, guys, this, th there's these uh, levels of development happening right now. AI is taking a very important role in a, in a clinical practice. Um, you need to see this. You need to learn how things work. You need to learn how telemedicine works. You need to learn how remote monitoring works. You need to understand, um, you know, the different solutions that are being given to you in terms of telemetric uh, and at distance um, clinical practice. Because if you don't do that, there's a, there's a big uh, chance that in the future you're not going to be as relevant as you are right now. And of course, that increases outcomes. You know, the decentralization of healthcare services is really important in many countries in the world. And one of the best ways to leverage that decentralization and so increasing equity and health access is actually using these technologies. And that's also something that we have to, to um, learn to educate doctors um, in, in this space of digital uh, health. So that was one of those uh, things that we discussed in the panel. And um, 
he has great ideas, you know, uh, John is, um, we, we had also like a, a Zoom call the other day and um, he has ideas that sometimes people would say, well, they are a little bit far ahead. <laughs> but I think it's important that doctors can at least understand that yeah, many of these ideas might be very futuristic. Some of them are already happening at the moment and um, you need to prepare yourself to adequate your medical practice and the way you practice medicine um you know into the new world um otherwise you're going to be just left behind yeah no and that's a great point and um you know when you think about doctors and their experience with patients and how they deal with patients on a regular basis um they're not i guess they're not fully equipped to help the patient always make the right decision and i think one thing that technology allows for is that gentle nudging in real time when the doctor's, you know, doing something else and, and we'll use technology to augment the treatment um, at the right time in the right place. And I think that, you know, we talked about this before the podcast, but I, I would like you to kind of share this again is diseases are complicated things and they can progress differently with different people over time. So, you know, you use diabetes as an example. Do you want to talk a little bit about how diabetes, the, the process of, you know, acquiring diabetes in the first place and then all the different types of symptoms you can get and how they need to be treated can be um, helped with technology. Yes. So before I do that, I just want to say, when you said patients help themselves, I just want to bring that back because there's something called patient empowerment. And that's something that is happening right now with technology. You know, patients are starting to get empowered. They're starting to understand the data. They're starting to collect their data. Even from their Apple Watch, you know, they get an ECG every day. They collect it. They see what they, how their, the status of their heart is doing. Um, some of them get even more advanced wearables. They, they see their heart rate variability. Um, they they uh, check their SpO2. Uh, patients that are recovering from corona, they are checking their pulse oximetry every day. They understand what it is. And they understand how they have to trend it. And I think it's important that we understand that part as well as doctors, that patients are empowered. Um, so that they, they're just not going to do things because we tell them to do that. We need to learn to explain. We need to learn to work with them. And we need to learn to use these technologies as well and, and give them the value that the patient does as well. Um, so we have more credibility from the patient side, but also that we know um, at some point how to use them in favor of our patients. And that being said, yes, so understanding physiopathology, that's what I was telling you before. Um, and I used the example of diabetes and, and I'm gonna do it again then. Um, so when we, when we build up digital therapeutics, um, doctors, right? We, uh, what we do is we, we can't like dismember the, the different stages of a disease. And for instance, when we think about diabetes, diabetes is one of the most complex diseases uh, because it has different variables that originate into diabetes, um, whether it is uh, from nutrition, a lack of exercise, hereditary, um, and many other um, variables that basically can cause a person to acquire diabetes, let's say type two. And then there's all the patient journey through the moment of diabetes. Some of them get very well compensated very fast. Some of them get really badly compensated. Some of them get a very difficult uh, spikes of, of glucose glycemia when, when they eat certain, um, certain foods or they have deep hypoglycemia, so the glycemia goes down when they, uh, when they haven't eaten at some moments of the day or they did some exercise. And, um, and there's like a very big uh, complex way of treating um, this disease, you know, understanding many different points of data, let's call it points of data, which would be glucose, insulin uh, dosification, nutrition, exercise, uh, habits, um, you know, just their normal behavior around the day. So when we, when we develop DTX, when we develop technologies to actually treat diseases as doctors, we are just basically uh, identifying moments where we can intervene in a disease, where we see that are the moments of, let's call it the moments of weakness or the moments that would allows that if there's a behavioral change or a lifestyle change in that specific moment, the disease might be corrected or that spike of glucose might not happen. And so that the hyper, we, we would be able to avoid the hyperglycemia. We will be able to avoid the hypoglycemia. And, um, and then when we build technology around that and we say, okay, well, okay, so these are the things that we have to do to make the patient get better. So what do we do? Do we use 
deep learning or do we use vector regression? You know, so how do, which AI do we choose um, or what type of machine learning do we choose to actually help us analyze this data? How do we, how do we put this data in contrast with another data? You know, all those things really make us uh, be able to be selective in the intervention and also uh, being able to ge generate this uh, higher quality of outcomes, let's say, uh, in, during the patient disease. But it starts from the moment of, of identification of the intervention through the, the patient journey and then building the technology around it. Yeah, and I think that's so important for people to understand. So thank you for sharing that. It'll be interesting to see how different organizations, startups, people sort of try to tackle those interesting problems. So we were talking about AI. I have a question about the singularity, which I ask many of my guests. What are your thoughts about the singularity that is supposed to happen in 2045, which was popularized by Ray Kurzweil, another futurist? Um, I think I've I've heard about the that the singularity uh, when when humans will transcend biology. Is that what you are referring to? Yes, yeah. So humans transcend biology. AI will be so intelligent, so artificial, general intelligence to the point where. Um, it surpasses human mm -hmm. intelligence. Um, what can I tell you? I, I am surrounded with, with futurists all the time. And um, this is a topic that comes and comes back every single time. Uh, it makes me a little bit uh, anxious. <laughs> I think that as a doctor and, and also as a human being, we always have this, let's call it fear of the unknown, right? Even though we dominate several aspects of uh, artificial intelligence to some extent we we understand how it works and um or at least the, the types of artificial intelligence that we use in healthcare we understand how it works and we understand how it impacts healthcare i think you know uh when we think about how if it taking over everything else um that's that's a really scary thought um so I, I mean, I have to say, I'm, I'm one of the people that really trusts machines too much, I would say. Uh, the other day, there was this YouTube video that I was watching of a kid um, driving a Tesla, right? And the first day that he's driving the Tesla, a Tesla starts driving on its, on its own and the kid is like completely anxious, like driving the steel wheel and like super nervous. And, um, and then after a week, the kid is like eating a chocolate and like, you know, driving without hands and uh, and after two weeks you see the video the kid is sleeping in the car and um i think that i'm just also that type of person not because i drive a tesla but because i also like have a, a, a deep confidence in technology but i do have to say that um those questions about um uh, you know the singularity is it near is, is it really going to happen uh, yeah those are those are things that i i have to say made me a little anxious <laughs> Yeah, I hear you there. And um, I'm also like, you know, kind of trusting towards technology, but it's still curious to kind of think about these things because you really don't know how in 20 years things can change. It's pretty incredible. Even the last, if we think about the last 20 years, how much things have changed, it's, it's only going to increase exponentially. So, yes, um, I mean, yeah. there, there's, I saw this movie with these dogs. Uh, I, th I think it was, a, it was a chapter in Black Mirror um uh, of these robot dogs and then you see them in the boston's uh, boston technologies that they made the exact dog <laughs> yeah and it's, a, it's a real thing <laughs> and they're like if they are militarized dogs right who knows what can happen if they have their own mind so it is a little bit scary there i have another question actually more on the wearable side this is probably my last question and then we can see if you have any additional things we can wrap up but have you if you had to have a microchip implanted inside of your body where would you want it to be implanted? That's an and amazing you, question. That's an amazing yeah. question. So, um, I guess because I am, um, because I am, I have uh, autoimmune diseases. Um, I think I would probably uh, implant it. I, I would probably implant it in my bone marrow, um, just to understand a little bit the the, the genesis of of immunity. Um, but it's just a very, very general thought. If, if I, I don't suffer of any chronic diseases, only, only psoriasis, which is not only a disease, so I can't really tell you more than that. But I think that many people would probably 
do it in their heart as heart disease is very um one of the biggest burdens in society and, and um, worldwide um probably there will be also really cool uh, usage of um, of implanted wearables if we could finally understand the mutation and the origin of the mutation of many cancers and how we could you know prevent it by having a wearable i think it's these are like just very general thoughts and uh, very futuristic ideas with the current technology i can only have an implanted wearable that monitors my heart um so if, if you ask me about that <laughs> um i i know that there are some ingestibles as well that that give you an endoscopy and i think those are really really interesting uh future usages for ingestibles as well yeah i've heard of those as well i always wanted to try one but i haven't um had the opportunity i do like your answer about bone marrow i don't think i've heard that yet so it's pretty unique and quite interesting seems a little bit difficult to get in there but i think uh you know with future technology anything is possible um well jonathan thank you so much for your time and your you know conversation and insights here on wearables and digital therapeutics uh, is there anything else you wanted to share with the audience before we wrap up? I just wanted to say that um, to my fellow colleagues, uh, doctors, uh, you know, worldwide, to uh, to not be afraid of technologies and to try to read a little bit more about it. Um, I've, I've had the, the privilege and sometimes not so much uh, of speaking with different colleagues and some of them have extreme uh, understanding of technologies and how they work and some other ones are really in, in a denial phase um of the potentials that technology has and we are living in a world in which we need to think a little bit more outside of the box and you know we've seen it during the covid pandemic we, we need to be decentralized we need to leverage ac access to healthcare to so many people and technology will help us do that so it, it's just a message for the for the colleagues over there fantastic thank you so much again thank you ray Hey all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.